0: All right, well, welcome back, uh, Mill Church. We are uh, just beginning a year-long study in the book of Romans. If you missed last week, if you have your Bible along today, turn to chapter 1. Chapter 1, last week we got a synopsis of the upcoming year. Today we're going to tackle our first several verses. Why Romans? We answered this question last week. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he was led by the book of Romans. Romans when he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Pope. uh, Many spiritual awakenings have happened because members of a church or a denomination took seriously the book of Romans. Uh, We've stayed away from it in our first 10 years of history because it causes your brain to hurt when you study it. It's complex, it's deep, it's hard to understand, it intimidates many a preacher, including myself. But I'm going to make you a promise if you'll hang with me during the study of this book. Uh, I believe that the scriptures are correct in what they say about themselves that in Hebrews 4, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double edged sword, that it's able to penetrate. Uh, between bone and marrow, between soul and spirit. That is to say that scripture can get into our inmost parts and change us. And my guarantee to you is that if you're here, that's going to happen. The book will change you if you are here. So I'd invite you to, over the next year, make attendance a priority. Paul's logic is so linear that the Harvard Law School for its first 100 years used it as a book to teach their law students how to formulate an argument in a court of law. And so if you miss one piece, it's likely that the pieces on either side of it don't quite add up because there's a chunk in the middle that you missed. You can do that by being here. You can do that online. I'd love to just invite you to allow the Apostle Paul to make a case that will change your life over the next 12 months. And so uh, the review that I'll give you quickly, what we went over last week, is that Romans is a book in large part about the gospel, what we've called the gospel. Um, The gospel means good news. It wasn't always a sacred term or a term associated with church and now we hear of it we think gospel music or we think uh, telling people about Jesus or we think the message of the cross. It used to be that it just meant when a military victor would come back from war, a king, he would gather his constituents and he would say, I've got some gospel to tell you. I've got some good news to tell you. We've won uh, the war. So it was saying that the battle has already been won. That was the connotation in which it was used. Obviously when Jesus was on the cross he said what Three words, it is finished, meaning the battle has already been won. It's true for us today too. The battle against sin over Satan, over hell, over death has indeed been won. We're recipients of the gospel, the good news that in our context applies directly to what happened on uh, an object shaped like that one uh, some 2,000 years ago. Furthermore, uh, if you are a, a Christian, I, I told you last week, don't bail out. Um, you say I've read Romans a hundred times. Romans wasn't actually written to non-Christians. It was written to Christians. So I said last week, we, we don't uh, improve the performance of a well by increasing the circumference of the well, the, the size of, of the dig. We we'd go what? Deeper. And that's what we're going to do over this year. We're going to go uh, deeper. And so I hope uh, you too, those of you who have been around a while, will make this a priority. Um, I will tell you that the people that have most profoundly impacted me, while some of them were uh, professors in Bible college, most of them are people that didn't know Greek and Hebrew. Most of the people that have showed me how to be a great Christian were not theologians. But they took very seriously the truth of scripture, that a man sent from God, who was also God, died and rose again. And it's the rediscovery of the simplicity of that story that really results in the most profound life change. And so that's what we're going to hope happens over the course of 12 months. Uh, we didn't really get into this last week, but Paul, just so you're aware, is dealing with a problem actually, in this book. He's dealing with a problem of, of racism, in fact, um, of, of a division of Jews and of non-Jews, of Jews and of Gentiles, we'll hear them called in this book, um, in the church at Rome. Today, Rome is a vacation destination. It was not in the days of Paul. It took a lot of courage to go to Rome. It was ruled by a very uh, secular, polytheistic culture that put to death christians so standing when we read him standing in the streets of rome preaching the gospel um, it should be a, a, a connotation to us of great sacrifice great courage almost a knighthood if you will somebody that that braved the odds went for it told people about jesus jews who didn't generally orthodox jews like christians at this point in history they had a special diet that the non-Jews weren't following. They had uh, certain political convictions that weren't shared by non-Jews. And the Jews had actually been ordered during the reign of Emperor Claudius to leave Rome, to leave Rome Uh, for five years. They were kept outside of the city. They were allowed to come back. We read about this in Acts 18. Once they came back to the city, Paul is dealing with a church that is, is filled with people who have come back who used to be in charge and people who during those five years took over responsibility who were non-Jews. So to put this into kind of sort of a similar context, what if between this and next week, all the Mill Church Stratford members were kicked out of this space uh, and meanwhile, it was given to Edgar folks for five years to worship in okay um, Edgar needs a space to call their own too I hope you know and what if Edgar took our charcoal seats and turned them into Edgar Green seats while we were gone and what if Edgar took our charcoal carpet and turned it into Edgar Green carpet and what if on every light fixture Edgar hung one of its jerseys and what if instead of our wooden offering collection plates Edgar put in its place wildcat wildcat helmets okay And then what if we came back on the same Sunday, five years later? How do you think we can feel? I don't know how you'd feel about that. I would be upset. I'd be upset, right? This was our space. And this is the kind of context that Paul walks into, that Paul is writing a letter to address. Different people groups with different mindsets. They don't know it yet, but they have everything they'd ever need to have in common. And that's what, in part, the book addresses. So, he walks into fireworks. Let's talk about who uh, Paul was. Paul, uh, he says in verse 1 of chapter 1, he identifies himself a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. That word has a little a, not a big a uh, meaning. It's not an apostle as in one of the 12 apostles, but rather an apostle that simply means somebody who's sent. Okay, so in the same word or way that we would use the word apostle today, we still use it to talk about modern day people, not as one of the 12, but as somebody who set apart for the gospel of God. Sounds like a righteous guy, yes? Righteous guy. But first, Paul was a Pharisee. Very, very religious man. He was hyper-devoted to a sect of Judaism. In Philippians, he would call himself, do you remember, the Pharisee of Pharisees, meaning I'm the biggest, baddest Pharisee there's ever been. I'm the man of the hour, the tower of power, too sweet to be sour. Make you say, oh, like Jerry Clower. That's me. Rick Flair used to say that in the WWE, or what's now become the WWE. He was, he was the guy He studied under the guy. He studied under Mr. Miyagi of his day, in uh, the religious scholar named Gamaliel. Um, Paul knew the first five books of the Bible, uh, the the Torah, like the back of his hand. He would even quote from the prophets, from other Old Testament books. He was proficient in many languages. He was multilingual, and Paul not only knew the laws, he, you better believe it, kept the laws. He said in Philippians, if anybody thinks they're good at keeping laws, I was better. I was better. I was good at being good. Okay, And he was such a devoted Jew, he so errantly believed that the Messiah had not yet come. We call these folks today Orthodox Jews, not Messianic Jews, those who believe that Jesus has already come. So devoted was he to the cause of Orthodox Judaism that he killed Christians. He put them to death. He was a persecutor. This was his job. First Philippians, uh, uh, excuse me, First Philippi- Philippians 3.6. I was so zealous for God that I was even willing to kill for God. He would do whatever it took to get rid of Christians. And that was part of Paul's problem. Paul started to realize that his zeal for good had led him to be a really bad man. And I didn't mention this in the first service, but Jesus Christ actually encountered Paul um, on the Damascus Road. He was blinded. It was sometime later that he received his sight, and that was his conversion experience. How many of you are glad you just walked in the church and got saved? (laughs) You didn't have to go blind for a while. So it took something profound to alter the course of this Christian hater, of this persecutor. And it was an encounter with Jesus. And how many of you know that religion, we're not talking about the, the pure religion that James speaks of that takes care of orphans and widows like we did yesterday in leaf raking in the community of Stratford. We're talking about religion. How many of you know that religion caters to the absolute worst parts of humanity? Did you know that Bill Maher and the Apostle Paul would agree on this? Think about religion. Think about if there's no relationship with Jesus. What is left? What is it? It, it, it massages our pride. Religion massages our self-centeredness. Religion coddles and takes care of our, our judgmentalism our self-righteousness. We're talking about those that talk the part and look the part, but don't really walk the part. All of God's people said, amen. These are those people who know Greek and Hebrew, but have never told anybody about Jesus. These are the people that read the Bible every year and never do anything good for their neighbor. Religion is inherently competitive, even when you're competing with self. I have to be better than you. I have to be better than me so that I'll stand apart one day. And there's one exception that Paul will so thoroughly argue throughout this book to the idea of religion. An exception is Is the gospel. The gospel teaches that God gives salvation not to those who earn it and set themselves above everybody else, but rather God gives salvation to those who are totally unworthy and cry out to Him to make them by some miracle, which was the cross, worthy. That is the gospel. Paul teaches that the understanding of the gospel takes you off of your pedestal, out of your Phariseeism, and puts you in the position of a slave or a servant to the agenda of God. The goal of a Pharisee is to be elevated, the goal of a servant is to be lowered. As a Pharisee, Paul would encounter problems in people's lives, and he would tell them, You're getting what you deserve. You didn't do enough. You weren't good enough. You didn't cut the mustard. And as a Christian, Paul says, "You know what? This is, this is how you know you've been a Christian. When you tell somebody about some bad things you've done, and the person responds, "You know what? I've done some bad things too." Aren't you grateful for the grace of God? Aren't you grateful that God pursued you even when you were bad? Yesterday, I got a text from a family that moved out of town. And day before yesterday, Pastor, can I get the, the church's PO box again? We would, nine months ago, they moved out of town. We'd like to send in our final, we've been identifying another church. We, we have, our kids are loving kids' ministries. We bought a home elsewhere. We just, we want to honor our commitment. We want to send our last $3,000 for our bold commitment. And I said, no, don't worry about it. Man, just give it to your local church. Do you think I said that? I said, I'm so grateful that you're following through with your commitment. I said, thank you so much. Thank you for seeing what you have, not as yours, but as God's. Amen? That's the gospel at work. The gospel produces a different kind of person than zealous religion. Religion makes you proud. Religion makes you self-centered. The gospel makes you humble. The gospel makes you generous. The gospel makes you admit that you don't have it together. The gospel produces a fundamentally different person. There's a pastor in North Carolina. I grew up in North Carolina who lost his wife and an unborn child when an EMT driver crossed the line after having fallen asleep at the wheel after a 24-hour shift, shouldn't have been driving, killed them both, wife of the pastor, the unborn baby. And the pastor showed up at the sentencing, at the court case, and pleaded for a more lenient sentence for the EMT worker. And the today's Show brought him on and today's show asked the question, why did you do that? Why would you, how could a person do that? You lost your wife and your unborn child. And he simply responded, it's exactly what Jesus Christ did for me. After I wronged Jesus, Jesus brought me close. He didn't push me away. Religion pushes people away who have wronged you. Christianity draws them close. That's what the gospel does. So fundamentally changed was Paul that he wanted a new name. He said, I'm a completely different person. I don't want to be Saul anymore. That's who he was before he met Jesus. Saul, by the way, is a namesake for the proud, arrogant, tall, head and shoulders above the rest, Israelite king who pursued people, chased them, trying to kill them. It was all about his agenda. The name Paul actually means little, little man. Why would somebody say, "I want to remove the namesake of big, mighty warrior king and take on the namesake of 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 little, a small in stature"? Is because he was a changed man, and it's because he was using his new name because he saw himself in relationship to Jesus Christ as a servant who was small. Not a big, grand, or lofty bosser of others. I'll tell you, let me just ask this Has this transformation happened in your life? Truly. Religion to gospel. I could care less about pastoring a church, frankly, with a bunch of people who are great at being good. What thrills me, and I believe thrills Jesus, is when we have a whole bunch of people who, out of a sense of gratitude for what he's done, want to go out and change the world. Amen? who can inconveniently rake leaves because Jesus was inconvenienced, who foster a child because God took them in when they were lost, who give generously because Jesus gave up his own life. Does this make sense? We're done with verse one. We only have 432 verses left. Isn't that awesome? Awesome. What about the man's message? Why was Paul so confident? Have you ever wondered that? Why these harrowing journeys around the world? Why shipwreck and imprisonment and snake bites? I mean, this guy lived adventurously. Why so much pain? We can even put it this way. Why are we, the church, always urging you to go to El Salvador and to talk to people about Jesus? And isn't this all just needlessly awkward I mean, can't we just privatize the good news and keep it close? Can't we just blend in in culture? Paul would say, absolutely not. Let me say this if you're a guest this morning. Nothing would thrill our hearts more. I, I rarely have such a moment of transparency, but I'll just be honest. Nothing would thrill our hearts more than your conversion. then you converted to Christianity. Because this room is full of people that have converted to Christianity and have said, I have known life without Jesus, and I have known life with Jesus, and life with Jesus is so much sweeter than life without Jesus. And that's what we want for you. That's what we want for, for you. So I'll be clear with our agenda. We want you to meet God, to love God, God, we said it. I'll publicize it. We want you to trust Jesus like we have. And I'll even acknowledge some Christians are socially awkward. They are. They don't know how to do it. They're maybe too forward. They, 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 they do it at the expense of friendship and, and community and family. I admit that. They were awkward before they became Christians, just so you know. Don't blame it on God. Don't blame it on the church. Don't blame it on the Bible. There's just some awkward Christians, okay? Let me explain to you uh, why we want you to hear Paul's message. Verses two through four. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets. What does that mean? Let's talk about those three words. They're very, very, very important. Paul, the apostle, the apostle Paul's most compelling evidence for you, our guest, to convert to Christianity today or sometime soon in your life was that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. That was his evidence. And apparently, even Jesus, I'll take a bit of a tangent just for a few minutes and, and remind you that in Luke 24, Jesus himself, he was walking down what was called the road to Emmaus. Emmaus. Anybody remember this story? It was after his resurrection and two guys appeared to him and they were sad. They were, they were distraught because Jesus was dead. They didn't know Jesus was standing right by them, talking with them, engaging them. They thought Jesus has died and they thought this whole thing's a hoax. This whole thing's a wash. Where is Jesus? And instead of coming out like an entertainer with a top hat and a tap dance, Hey, I'm Jesus. You know, da 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 da. Hey! Jesus didn't do that. Instead, Jesus took them back to Scripture in a clandestine way, in a ninja like way. Jesus did not reveal his identity. And he took them to the Old Testament Scriptures. And here's what he showed them in the Old Testament Scriptures He said, Hey, do you remember in Genesis? Jesus was the word of God that's mentioned in the book of Genesis. Let's take the second book. What about Exodus? Do you remember the book of Exodus? Jesus is the Passover lamb that's talked about in the book of Exodus that was sacrificed. Let's go to the next one. What about Leviticus? Do you remember Leviticus? This was the holiness of the temple. That represents Jesus. That represents God. Let's go to to Numbers. And Jesus in Luke 24 walks them through. In Numbers, he was our ever-present guide, and he was a pillar of fire by day, and he was a a pillar of cloud, or rather, cloud by day, and fire by night. And, And then in Deuteronomy, he was the prophet who would be greater than Moses. I'm showing you, or Jesus was showing them, that books written Thousands of years, hundreds to thousands of years before Jesus Christ would walk the earth were pointing to Jesus. And somehow Jesus thought showing them the prophets was more compelling evidence than simply saying to their face, don't you recognize who's standing in front of you? Be at peace. I'm Jesus And I could be wrong, but I think the reason he did that is he knew he was only going to be around for 40 more days. So he knew that he was going to be gone again. And he thought the more enduring way to cultivate their faith would be to show them how the prophets speak to him throughout the Old Testament. He'd say, that's just the only, the first five books. I mean, undeniably, and I would tell you, undeniably, Several hundred years before Christ, the book of Micah said uh, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. It names the place. No scholar, Christian or secular, denies that the book of Micah was written several hundred years before Jesus. Nobody. And no one denies that authentically, it says Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And nobody denies that the man, Jesus, was born in Bethlehem. Sacred or secular, many deny that he was God. But no one denied that what somebody wrote about over here, in fact, 30 different authors of the Old Testament over the course of 1,500 years, their stories line up about one man. And I would tell you if you're visiting, start with that. Don't say it's hogwash without researching for yourself. This is the way Paul makes a compelling argument. It was the way Jesus made a compelling argument. It's the way that I would like to make a compelling argument this morning. What about Zechariah? He said he'd ride it on a donkey and be betrayed by thirty pieces of silver. Hundreds of years before Jesus, both of them happened. A donkey and silver and the number of pieces of silver. General or specific? I mean, that's very specific. So we have to answer these questions. Jesus doesn't say, take my word for it. He says, look at what people wrote hundreds of years ago. That's me. It's all about me. Verse 4 by the res- resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is another piece of evidence that the Apostle Paul puts forward to validate his own claims. He starts out with something concrete. By the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, Did you know that that the apostles, those, and I'm going to use the capital A apostle this time, those that walk with Jesus, they saw him after death. He ate a piece of broiled fish with them. He spent time with them. He engaged them. He showed them the wounds in his hands and his feet. Those are the people who are giving us these accounts. And, and, and Paul says here, too, by the res- resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm not going to talk about the evidence of the resurrection today. It is beyond compelling. But if you're unsure that the resurrection is accurate, is real, if you think it might be a hoax, I would encourage you to start by reading Lee Strobel's case for Christ. Lee Strobel's case for Christ, a cynic out of Chicago. He's a Midwestern boy. You should be able to listen to him. Cynic out of Chicago, journalist. Totally anti-Christian, got annoyed by the same kind of people I'm annoyed by that don't build relationship and just want to convert them. And so he said, "I'm going to set out with all my journalistic power, to prove a falsehood, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And over the course of lengthy study and interviews with scholars in many months he penned A Case for Christ because during the middle of his research, he converted and became a Christian. And he says at the conclusion of his book that the only way that a person can study, actually study the evidence of the resurrection and walk away not a Christian is if they have some kind of bias before they begin. That's the only way. Verse five, through him, Paul says, we received grace. The message of grace, we're singing about it, we're talking about it often, is inseparable. You can't separate it from the gospel. This is why those that say all religions teach the same thing, we hear that, people say that all the time. All religions take the same t- uh, say the same thing. They're saying in that statement that they know nothing about the world religions. They do not teach the same thing. One of them teaches if you blow yourself up, you'll end up on a planet of naked women. But there's nothing like the Bible teaches. I remember as a high school student, long before I met my wife, trying to get a girl's number in the mall and asking her what her digits were and writing the number down and taking it home and calling her later that afternoon only to discover that I had a digit wrong. I don't know whether she gave me the wrong digit intentionally or whether I wrote it down or mem- remembered it wrong, but I'll tell you, I, I didn't get her on the other end of the line. And it was not someone beautiful like her. And it was not someone her age. And it was not someone with her same color of hair. Like, you cannot just call any number and get home. It just doesn't work. And so what I want you to know is that they're not all the same? C.S. Lewis was asked in a room full of scholars, "Here's all the attributes of God. Here's all the attributes of God, C.S. Lewis, the, the most brilliant thinker in the 20th century for, for Christendom Christians. He wrote Chronicles of Narnia, or a lot of children's books. Um, he says, "What is, what is the, the word? What is the word up here that separates your God from all of ours?" And the word wasn't up there. But he wrote one word on the chalkboard and walked off. He wrote the word "grace." Every other religion teaches us that we need to work to obey and then that we're wanted. Christianity teaches us we're wanted first. Glory to God. God loves us while we are still in our sin. And then we get, it's our privilege to obey him. Okay, are we all on the same page? Say yes. Yes. All right, we're almost done. We're almost done. Verses 14 through 17. I want to talk to you about Paul's mission. Paul makes three statements that we cannot overlook or miss. Here's the first one he makes. I want to tell you how it applies to us. I am not ashamed Of the gospel. I'm not ashamed. I am not ashamed. Have you ever wondered why Christians, in large part, and this is sad, they feel, they're tempted to feel ashamed for the gospel? Ashamed. Tim Keller, Presbyterian pastor, great preacher, brilliant thinker, um, says there are four reasons Christians feel ashamed. Number one, we can't handle the free gift idea. We just can't handle it in our human nature. It just defies all logic that Jesus gave us a free gift. He says, this offends moral and religious people who think that their decency gives them an advantage over less moral people. Second, he says, we can't handle the idea that we're wicked. He says, this offends, this teaching of Christianity offends the popular, popular belief in the innate goodness of humanity. I can tell you, I have a five-year-old. There is no innate goodness in humanity. Third, Keller said, we can't handle the idea that sincere people will not automatically make it to heaven. We can't handle that in our era. He writes, this offends the modern notion that any nice person anywhere can find God, quote, in his own way. And fourth, this is why we're ashamed. Number four, we can't handle that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus suffering and serving, I would insert in the United States of America, and that we ought to go and do likewise, suffer and serve. Keller writes, this offends people who want salvation to be an easy life, nice and comfy. He's spot on. To not be ashamed. When Paul says I'm not ashamed, what does that mean? It means we recognize that none of this is popular and we proclaim it anyway even though it doesn't line up with cultural values. Paul's saying, I know this message offends all of us, but I'm not ashamed because I know that in the message lies the power of God. Second, Paul says, I'm eager. Second of three, I'm eager to preach the gospel. Romans 1.15. I won't meander here. We talked about this quite a bit last week. I'll just simply ask, are you eager to tell the good news to other people? Are you eager? Why do we plant campuses? Why do we go to El Salvador? Why does Brady Bruzewicz, a teenager, give up six months of his life to go abroad? Why do we emphasize generosity? Why do we want to make the Mill Church a permanent fixture on State Highway 97? It's because we're eager to preach The gospel, not just to you and your kids, but to your kids' kids and your kids' kids' kids. Amen? That's the goal. For it to be enduring. Spurgeon said, If my hearers are not converted, I have wasted my time. I have lost the exercise of brain and heart. I feel as if I lost my hope and lost my life unless I find for my Lord some of his blood bought ones. The Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed, I'm eager, and last one, I'll leave you with this I'm obligated. I'm obligated. The word he uses, verse 14, it it means indebted. Kind folks yesterday when we went around and rake leaves gave us a sum, I think, of $120. $120. It was not solicited. We told them we were doing this out of the goodness of our heart. We're from the Mill Church. We want to help you. They insisted upon giving us money. What if I said to you, you know what? Or what if I said to myself, you know what? I... I've been here all morning. I could use a new trail camera. I can get a great one on sale for 120 bucks. It produced beautiful, crisp, clean pictures of quality bucks. Man, that sounds good. Do you think I'd do such a thing? No, why would I not do such a thing? It's not my money, right? It's God's money okay? And God tells us it's the same way with the gospel. What I've given you isn't for you. It's for other people. You've got to share the news. It's something of value. So why don't you pay it forward? To not do that is to steal the gospel from somebody else. I'll close with this story. Don't miss this. This is a good one. Adoniram Judson, first Baptist missionary, went to Burma. Went to Burma. I think they call it Myanmar now, not Burma. And he just fallen in love with a girl in the United States named Anne Hasseltine, and she too loved missions and had a passion for the nations. And he wanted to ask, true story, it's recorded, thank God, for our growth and benefit. He wanted to ask for her father's permission. And so he wrote him a letter. I've lightly edited this, but this is what the letter said in part to her father, the girl that he loved, who needed permission from to marry. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to foreign dangerous lands and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to every kind of distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and maybe even a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for your daughter and for you, for the sake of the perishing immortal souls For the sake of the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise from those saved through her witness? Is how you feel about the gospel. I asked you last week to be in prayer about one person that you would share faith with this year. Relationally, in friendship, intentionally, moving the marker as, as the year logs on. Who have you identified? If you haven't, please prayerfully consider that person. Take them some cookies. Invite them over for dinner. Help them clean up their leaves. Engage them. Show them kindness. Lead them to Jesus. We are under obligation. Father, Father, I pray that we would know that we would be unashamed. I pray, Lord, that we would be eager. And I pray that we would feel obligated, as did this missionary to Burma. Lord, I pray that we would not let modern-day convenience and culture distract us from your mission, from your message. Let us be men and women of God about your business. In Jesus' name, amen.